Hey there, welcome to Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank. We have a fun and uh, kind of romantic, I don't know, I said that with a question mark, show in store for you this week. First up, the journalist Jay Wortham, staff writer for the New York Times Magazine and the co-host of the podcast Still Processing. They'll explain what you should major in in college if you want to get the job of culture and tech watcher, and then how having that job might land you on a nude queer beach in Oaxaca. Then the romance part. Uh, We're going to talk to the author Curtis Sittenfeld about her latest book, Romantic Comedy, which follows a comedy writer on a TV show that goes live every Saturday night. Curtis is going to talk about how the book and the characters flip the script on some of those celebrity love stories that we tend to hear about. Then we've got music from Livewire favorite Margot Silker. Don't go anywhere. It all starts right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey there, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It's going pretty well this week, mostly because it is time for a little station location identification examination. Are you feeling feeling ready? I am so ready. This is where I give Elena a little quiz about somewhere in the country where LiveWire is on the radio. Got to guess uh, where I'm talking about. Uh, this place is home to an internationally known center for the arts, which was founded as a summer camp for young musicians. It's now actually a year-round school for artistically talented youth from around the world. I see you already nodding like you know this. Uh, what's the next clue? Just to, Just to confirm. The state park that's associated with this place is home to one of the last stands of old growth pine in this state, the state being Interlochen, Michigan, Interlochen, Michigan. My goodness, that was impressive. Where we're on W.I.C.A. FM. Do you know who the most one of the most famous graduates of Interlochen is? You No, Jewel. (laughs) Seriously, the uh, pieces of you, Jewel. Yes, she she was. It's an amazing school uh, that I would. I was so jealous of people who got to go to that school. So it's been on my dar for about forty years now, probably. <laughs> well, you're at least a person who knows about it. So, thanks to everybody tuning in from uh, Interlochen, Michigan. Shall we get to the show? Let's do it. All right, take it away. From PRX, it's. <laughs> This week, writer Jay Wortham. I 
can't trust my notes. I literally read them on the call to her and it was just like, what is the meaning of glitter? Like all caps. And I felt it. I felt it in my spirit. And author Curtis Sittenfeld. I think the romantic comedy has been subverted. It's very racially diverse, it's very queer, there's lots of elements of like fantasy or time travel. It's like a big world out mm. there in romance. With music from Margot Silker and our fabulous house band. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks to everyone tuning in from all over the country. We have a really fun, informative show this week. Of course, we asked the Livewire listeners a question. We asked, what is the most romantic movie moment of all time? And we're going to be hearing those responses coming up in just a few minutes. First, though, we got to kick things off with the best news we heard all week. This is our little reminder at the top of the show that there's some good news happening out there in the world. Elena, what is the best news you heard all week? Okay, uh, here's some cool stuff coming out of Tacoma Park, Maryland, which is uh, up by Silver Spring near D.C. Uh, at the corner of Flower and Erie, at that cross-section, there is an old-school payphone kiosk. So not a phone booth, but one of those things that kind of looks like a, a wash tub that you could kind of lean in if it was raining and put uh-huh. your change out, yes. remember? You can't put change in it anymore, but it's got this bright yellow receiver. And when you put it to your ear, you can hit a button and make it play you a bird call. <laughs> okay. You can hear a night heron. You could hear a pileated woodpecker. You could hear a red-tailed hawk. Or you could hear seven other native species. The dial tone is a morning dove, which I think is kind of great because it's kind of like... Hey, that's a pretty good morning dove. Thank you. So this amazing bird call phone booth is the brainchild of a local musician and artist named David Schulman, who noticed the kiosk back in 2016. And he wrote a grant to city officials asking for money to do this public interactive art project. They gave him $5,000 and the whole community really contributed into making this a reality. He bought a, a refurbished payphone off of eBay, put it in that spot. He got the bird files from the famous Cornell Bird Lab. So all the sounds are coming from basically kind of the gold standard. He had a local radio personality provide the operator voice along with other local <laughs> members. So now you can get these sort of like identifications of what bird is making what noise in English, Spanish, and Amharic, which are the three most spoken languages in the community. And there's this gentleman who owns the West African restaurant directly across the street from the phone booth. And he has, pardon the pun, a bird's eye view of what the past six years have been like for this phone booth. And do you know who the number one demographic of people who patronize this phone booth is? Kids. Can you guess why? <laughs> They're trying to call their mom to get a ride home from soccer practice? No, it's because they've never seen a phone kiosk before. Right. They have no idea. And this is a particularly cool place for this to be happening because Tacoma Park, Maryland is kind of bird town, USA. 
not far from this kiosk is another piece of public art that's dedicated to Roscoe the rooster, who was this rogue rooster that roamed downtown, avoiding capture and winning over both the townspeople and the shopkeepers' hearts for most of the 1990s. They just had a fugitive rooster that they prayed no one would catch. So there's a bird payphone and there's a rooster statue for this like total vagabond rooster. And so I am moving to Tacoma Park, Maryland. <laughs> this sounds like the place for you. Speaking of Maryland, by the way, that's also where the best news I saw this week comes from. It's a big Terrapin State segment this week. Uh, a couple of years ago, the uh, Girl Scouts of Maryland announced that they were going to be selling some land that they own. This is in Prince George's County. It's uh, an area called the Marlton Forest. It's like 20 minutes outside of D.C. And they were going to sell this land, and it turns out they were going to sell it to a real estate developer who was very excited because this is some beautiful property. And the real estate developer said they were going to put like over a thousand residences on this piece of land that was being sold. Well, there happened to be a Girl Scout of the local chapter named Nithra Purushathaman. And what she said later to the paper was, Girl Scouts has a tree pledge and all these nature environmentally friendly things. And by selling this forest to developers, they're kind of going back on all those policies. If they're teaching us all of these skills our whole lives, we feel like they should be following them too. <laughs> so Nithra who's 15 at the time of this, gets her couple of friends together, uh, her friend Sienna and her friend Miraya, and they start up a petition online to stop the, the Girl Scouts uh, organization that was going to be selling the land to the developer from doing that. But something about these three young people who are Girl Scouts themselves, they got like 3,500 signatures on their petition. And this was a couple of years ago, but it was just announced recently that, in fact, this forest will be sold to the Maryland National Capital Park and Planning Commission to be preserved as forest. And they sold it for like twelve and a half million dollars. It's a lot of uh, Girl Scout cookies. Yeah, that's a lot of thin mints. Yeah, seriously. Thick mints, more like it. <laughs> uh, they're going to use some of that money, though, to actually purchase adaptive outdoor equipment like tents for um, Girl Scouts that use wheelchairs. They're going to provide training to help neurodiverse campers and also offer mental health resources and more scholarships for campers. So not only is this section of forest in Maryland being preserved as forest, but some of the money from selling it is now going to be used to help more people, particularly more Girl Scouts, use the forest. Amazing. If you want something done, you need to call a Girl Scout. Get Sienna, Nithra, and Mariah together and you'll get some real results. So there you go. That is the best news that I heard this week. All right. Let's welcome our first guest over to the program. They're a staff writer for the New York Times Magazine and co-host of the podcast Still Processing, as well as co-editor of the anthology Black Futures. The Village Voice describes their writing as skirting the edges of tech, culture, and identity, carving out their own corner of the internet wherein they are a rightful star. They're currently working on a book about the body and dissociation. This is for Penguin Press. Jay Wortham joined us on stage at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. Take a listen. Hello, welcome to the show. 
I am so excited to be here. It's like, this is incredible. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Well, yeah. We have been we have been big fans of your work for a long time, and so this is uh, this is great to have you here. I want to start though, sort of at the beginning of maybe your young adult life. Did I read correctly? You studied medical anthropology in wow, college. Wow, you went back there. What? I, I just I <laughs> okay. don't think I had heard of that of that area yes. of study. What drew you to that, and what exactly does that encompass? Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought this up because not a lot of people know it's what happens when you don't know what the F you're doing in college (laughs) and you get them to make up a major for you. They're like, you've got some credits here. You've got some credits here. We'll make a, you know, degree sandwich. So I um, went to college. I was the first in my family to go away to a four-year school and my parents were just like, have fun, come out with the job. I had been really good at science in high school. I was such a nerd. And so when I got to college, I went to UVA, which is a school where that has an incredible medical program. Mm. So everyone was like, you should specialize in in pre-med. And after about a year or so, I was like, wow, I'm really miserable. I I don't love this. And I got really interested in anthropology, the study of culture. And I think what really fascinated me was thinking about how we talk about culture, right? Like how we talk about people, how we talk about how they lived, um, what gets included, what gets excluded. It really did prime me for so much of my life because, and my professional career later on, because I had this rigor of curiosity and I had this way of thinking about how we live and why it's important. And being someone who wasn't used to seeing their story being told or their history being told, I had that skepticism also when I was taking these classes. And so when I ended up writing about technology and writing about culture, I brought some of that same rigor with me. So it all worked out in the end is my point. I mean, that's why I was uh, internet researching what your major was because I find your career so fascinating. The variety of things that you write about and talk Mm -hmm. about on the podcast. How do you, when you're writing for the New York Times Magazine, do you think of yourself as having any sort of beat? How do you kind of go towards the stories you go towards? Thank you for saying such kind things about my career. I mean, it, it, when you were talking, I want to jump in and be like, it was called panic. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in college and after college and in high school too, actually, um, waitressing. So I'm a big service industry person, which is also kind of how I learned to interview Mm -hmm. because so much of that work is reading people. Mm -hmm. Like you walk up to a table and you're like, what's going on here? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Are we on a date? Is it a bad date? Is it a good date? If it's a bad date, you know, you're going to be more attentive, right? Because they need distractions. If it's a good date, you're like, I'm like heart, you know? Right. (laughs) Um, But you know, that really did prime me in a lot of ways. So it's, it's funny because I, I, when I was waitressing and I lived in San Francisco and I started interning at a bunch of different places and I landed at Wired Magazine, you know, started out as an intern, then a researcher. And I started writing about technology because that was just what I was living. So I was like, there are these cool things happening. So this is what I'm writing about. So some of my writing got the attention of the New York Times and I started having all these lunches and I started having all these meetings with them and they were like, do you want to come write for us? And I was like, uh, like, I'm 24, like, wow. uh, you know what I mean? And I was just like, that's bananas, no. What? And that's bananas, who am I? I'm like at the elbow room every night, like, I don't know, I'm just like, I'm not, that's not, that's not who I am, that's not what I'm capable of. Wow, you turned of. them down? I did turn them down, and actually they called me, 
And my incredible editor, Damon Darlin, whose name I always say because he was so supportive and so encouraging, and, and that's not many people's experience in that industry in particular. And he called me and he was like, I got your email. I want you to delete it. Send me another one that just says, like, when can I start? Wow. And so already, already like, editing you. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Right. Already editing me. Genius well, of a human. Uh, we're talking to Jay Wortham, a writer for the New York Times Magazine, among other things. And when we get back, I do want to talk about one of the pieces that they wrote where they went to a, uh, a nude beach in Oaxaca. And something happened to them that feels exactly like it would happen to me involving nudity. Yes comfort levels. Anyway, that's in a moment. This is Livewire. That's a hell of a forward promotion, by the way. This is Livewire from PRX. Back in a moment. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm -hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content, uh, and, Elena, uh, one more thing, that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm -hmm. here to talk about is you keeping Livewire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels it does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Hey, welcome back to LiveWire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We are at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon this week, and we are talking to writer Jay Wortham from the New York Times Magazine, as well as the podcast uh, Still Processing. Um, you wrote a piece in the Times Magazine a while ago about going to what you describe as being a sort of queer uh, nude beach mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. a fairly remote part of Mexico in Oaxaca. What were you expecting when you went down there? Oh, listen, I, I was expecting to like have a do-over of my 20s. I had a late coming out as a queer person in my mid-30s. And so I just felt like I missed a lot. And I was just sort of like, this is my time to shine. It's going to be like gay spring break. I don't know what's going to happen. I bought a thong. I was just like, this is going to be incredible. And it wasn't quite that. Something else happened when I was there. Well, actually, could you read a little bit from this yes. piece? Yeah. 
Okay, you set it up beautifully, thank you. So this is kind of a truncated version of me arriving at this beach and some of the things I experienced. I should also say that I've been researching queer beaches and waterways for the last couple of years because I just think they're really incredible spaces where community and history and um, amazing oral histories happen. So this is kind of some of the context. Okay, oh, here we go. I haven't read this out loud, so we'll see how this goes. Um, okay. After throwing my bags in my room, I ran down to the beach. I hadn't looked at any photos of Zipilite before arriving and didn't know what to expect. Pushing my way through the trees and brambles, I came around a bend and caught the breathtaking vista of a wide, flat beach, dotted with mountainous outcroppings that perforated the blues of the sky and the blues of the water. I spread out my blanket and flopped down, taking it in. It was Sunday, and the vibe felt languid, luxury fed by the surplus of hours left in the day. All around me, people were strolling hand in hand, reading books, playing volleyball, and eating completely naked. In planning my trip, I thought more about the queer aspect of the beach than the nude element, and I hesitated before joining in. The only times I've gotten naked in public, I've been busted or harassed on a rugged lake in Austin, Texas, where I felt so leered at by older men that I re-robed as quickly as I derobed, and in the dunes of Provincetown's mass, where a girlfriend and I tried to covertly have sex several times, only to have a park ranger chase us away several times with the increasing exasperation of someone trying to clear a road of errant livestock. <laughs> it's true. This was different, but I'd also arrived in Mexico with my winter body, which mere weeks before I had described to a friend as loose mashed potatoes tied up in a burlap sack. <laughs> also true. I decided to start slowly. After a few minutes, I stood up and pulled my sports bra over my head and tossed it to the sand. The flicker of heads turning towards me gave me a boost. I started jogging towards the water, gold chains bouncing on my bare chest, enjoying the attention. Along this particular stretch of coastline, the tide takes its time undulating onto the sand. Walking into the water cannot be rushed. It is the perfect stage for cruising. I made my way out there and dunked under the waves a few times, an earth song, a body song, as Langston Hughes wrote. Satisfied, I sprawled on my beach towel to bake. Serotonin coursed through me, sparked by the delight at arriving in a new place, drunk on sun and sand and beauty. As my skin began to heat back up, I leaned on my elbows and surveyed the scene. The longer I sat there in my swimwear, surrounded by so many unencumbered people, the more I became aware of my own clad body. My entire life, clothes felt like a necessary protective layer between me and the world. And on this beach, they felt like the leaden bebs you wear to get dental x-rays. Emboldened, I decided to take the next step, full nudity. I lifted my hips up and began sliding my nylon shorts off. Nylon. <clears throat> Almost immediately, I felt the whoosh of displaced air created by a mouth and motion near my ears. Agua de coco? I froze. I felt as if my entire body yelped. The gentleman who materialized on my left, holding a machete and a coconut, simply trying to sell me a refreshing beverage, looked as alarmed as I did. He dropped to a knee to introduce himself. He offered me his hand to shake it, and I accepted it gratefully with the hand that wasn't gripping my shorts. He told me he has a lot of respect for my people. Who are my people? Nudists, gays, black people? I'll never know. Heart still racing, I rested my shorts back up and settled back onto my blanket. In gay, watery enclaves, water also functions as a protective force. Spits of land cocooned or barricaded by water that take hours to reach by car or ferry are made for distance from gossip and prying eyes and shelter from convention. 
Chemically speaking, water is a near universal solvent. Its arrangement of oxygen and hydrogen atoms allow the molecule to dissolve more substances than any other liquid found in nature. The sheer strength of water itself can disrupt another molecule's electrostatic charge entirely. Water, then, has the absolute power to transform, to take one material and turn it into something else. What's queerer than that? Being made and unmade by a force greater than yourself. If queerness can be understood as a longing, a technology that allows us to glimpse something new that we can sense before we see it, a dowsing rod, a black light, then water might be the catalyst that dissolves our attachment to whatever is keeping us from it ourselves. Jay Wortham here on Livewire, reading from their piece in the New York Times Magazine. I thought that was uh, such a fascinating piece. Um, you had something much more recently that I was also fascinated with for different reasons, which mm -hmm. was writing about Beyonce's Renaissance tour. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess the first question is, what did you wear? Because there is, yeah. <laughs> there was like a lot of mandatory outfits or at least yeah. strongly suggested outfits. Like right. well, how did, what were you, what were you wearing? To, yeah. to go as a fan, because you went as a journalist and then a different time as a fan, if I have it correct? Yes, yes. I know, it's hearing this, I'm like, I have a good job. I, um, <laughs> I'm like, life is good. Yes, I went on Renaissance World Tour with friends and I wore like a silver sheer like cover up because I was just like, I'm going to be dancing, I'm going to be moving, it's going to be hot. Um, and then I had such a good time. I had a call with my editor like a day or two later and I just could not stop talking about Beyonce. And she was like, you should write about it. And I was like, look, if y'all want me to write about this, I got to go again. That was my time. I was on my time. I was also on some light amount of psychedelics. So I was like, I don't, I can't trust my notes. Right. Right. I can't trust my notes. I literally read them on the call to her and it was just like, what is the meaning of glitter? Like all caps, <laughs> like all caps. And I felt it. I felt it in my spirit. You know, it's just like, it was so amazing. So the first so, time you went, you were enjoying it as a fan. And then the second time, less drugs and more note-taking? Like, Correct. was it not as much, it just must have been much more like you're observing everything, because you're writing this now for yeah. your job. Yeah, Was it still fun the second time, or was it just work? It was work? so fun. No, okay. it was so fun. Because, I mean, I'm someone who, look, I'm re-watching all of Grey's Anatomy right now, because <laughs> it's the one show that I can watch that I know I never have to write about. Like, I'm someone who's in the world. <laughs> It's over. It's done. We all know what happens. You know, they all... I would read your think piece on Grey's Anatomy, it might happen. though. I, I will say, at this point, it, I have some thoughts. Um, but, you know, as a cultural critic, I wanted to see the production. I was just like, where is Beyonce at? Like, what is she thinking about? Like, I, I was going to go either way. It was so fun to go with that receptor tuned. And I was so excited just to, like, pay attention in that way. So, um, if I understand the timeline right, you had written a piece about Beyonce previously that had gotten her attention mm. and had involved a, a, some sort of a, a thank you note or a, a nice note right. from, from Beyonce. <laughs> does that arrive on a Pegasus? Right. How do you get, how is yeah. that news? How does one get that yeah. kind of feedback? Yeah, it was really interesting. I had been asked to contribute into this roundtable for the newspaper, so I, I mostly work for the magazine. I guess she had released Formation, and maybe it was new music in a very long time, and we had a really rousing conversation about Beyonce um, stepping into a new era of herself when pop stars politicize themselves, you know, the role of entertainment um, and how entertainers use their platform and sort of how that plays out and people's resistance to that, right? I guess she liked what I said because, you know, I came into work and there was a delivery and 
you know, I'll be honest, it was really embarrassing kind of because as a journalist, you know, you're supposed to have this objectivity. You're supposed to be distanced from these things. And people were literally coming by my desk to like touch the flowers. (laughs) And I just was like, it was, it was a delivery of flowers. And I was like, I can't take them home because people keep asking me like, are the Beyonce flowers here? You know? (laughs) And it was, it was really shocking, but, um, I kept the note. I don't think she wrote it. I don't know. It doesn't look like her handwriting on her Tumblr. Um, Um, the other thing, uh, we're getting towards the end of our time here, but I want to talk to you about Still Processing, which is this great podcast that you and Wesley Morris do. I'm curious, did it come about because the two of you were just like in the lunchroom at the New York Times talking and you were like, <laughs> we should be recording this? Did, how, how, did, how did it start? He had the insight. He had the foresight. We would always get together and chit-chat and talk about things. And he had made a podcast when he was a writer at the Grantland or Grantland. And so, um, but so he had been pushing at the New York Times to get them to do a podcast and he wanted to do with me. And I was like, I feel like he came to ask me and I was like researching something in like a library and like looked up and was like dusty. And I was just like, get out of here. No, like I'm busy. Um, But it was such an incredible opportunity and and a way to learn to collaborate because when you're writing, you're just so siloed. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like you're, you're writing something and then an editor sees it. But this was a chance to learn how to think think out loud and public, which is really a trust fall and an act of vulnerability. Yeah. It's a very I mean, intimate um, show between you and Wesley mm-hmm. in the way that you're really there for each other. Will there be more, hopefully? We hope so. Okay. We always want to be making it. We're both finishing our books right now. Yeah. So it's just like yeah. one of those things where we're both like X number of years in and just need to do it. You know, those memes that are like how to finish a book and you like turn the slide and it's like, right the D-A-M book, you know? And like, it's, it's just that thing. Yeah, you just have to knows. do it. Yeah. <laughs> Writer so. of multiple books. Yeah. <laughs> how to finish a book. Don't do a radio show. Yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, that's how to finish a book. <laughs> all right. Well, it sounds like we all have places to be and other projects to do. So we're going to say goodbye to Jay Wortham from the New York Times Magazine and Still Processing. Thank Jay, you. thank you so much. Thank you. That was... Jay Wortham, right here on Livewire. Be sure to follow and check out their work in the New York Times magazine. Hey, special thanks this episode to Toral Milbrath of Portland, Oregon, and Victoria Gross of Bremerton, Washington. Toral and Victoria are supporting Livewire with a donation each month, and that is how this show can continue to happen. So a very, very big thanks to Victoria and Toral for keeping Livewire going. This is Livewire. Of course, each week we like to ask our listeners a question uh, because we're going to be talking to Curtis Sittenfeld about the book Romantic Comedy. We asked the listeners, what's the most romantic movie moment of all time? Folks responded, and Elena has been collecting up those responses. What are you seeing? Okay, so one movie got multiple mentions. Can you guess which one? Well, I'm a I'm a basic sort of person, so I'm wondering, was it Casablanca? No, what a great choice. Uh, no, it was Pride and Prejudice. Oh, okay. Which is even more classic, honestly. Uh, but specifically the 2005 Pride and Prejudice with Kira Knightley and Matthew McFadden. One person, Aurora, loves it when Mr. Darcy says... You have bewitched me, body and soul, and I love, love, love you. That, uh, that's Aurora's. That really grills Aurora's cheese, so to speak. 
You know, I'm, I've got four younger sisters and Liz, Sarah, Hannah, and Rachel, and they were Pride and Prejudice fans to the point where they would just call it Pret and Pret. Pret and Pret. Like it was being discussed so much in the household I grew up in that we couldn't waste the time to say Pride and Prejudice. They would just say Pret and Pret. And it was that one. It was the 2005. I think, no, I think it was the before that. It might have been like a BBC TV series. The Colin Firth. I think it was the Colin Firth version that loomed very large in the Burbank household. <laughs> All right. What's uh, another romantic movie moment that a listener loved? Mike says that Shrek is romantic as it gets, specifically Shrek 2, where the intro to the movie is a montage of their honeymoon, spoiler alert, they're frolicking and giggling, and they're farting together in a hot tub. (laughs) (laughs) So this person is worried that we're going to spoil the end of Shrek 1 by mentioning that there's a honeymoon in Shrek 2. For anybody who was taping it, they get married at the end of Shrek. Yeah, and they fart in the bathtub at the beginning of Shrek 2 is the most important part of the story. (laughs) Okay, one more quick romantic moment from one of our listeners. Oh, this one from Erica. Erica says the last scene in Rocky where he's gone 15 rounds and he's all beat up and there's a bunch of press everywhere asking him questions. Everything's chaotic. And the only thing he does is call out for Adrian. You know, he's like looking all over the place. He's being swarmed with people and Burgess Meredith's there. And he's just like, where's Adrian? Where's Adrian? That's my. (laughs) That's pretty good. It gets me every time. It's like he has one directive and it's just to find little Talia Shire. I think that, you know, when you really love someone and anything happens in your life, you just want to tell them about it, right? Like, that's the first thing you want to do for all of the kind of, you know, the violence of that movie and raw egg eating and eating lightning and crap and thunder. (laughs) All of it. It's at the end of it, really. He just wants to tell Adrian that he won. Like, she didn't know. Like, she wasn't just standing over there watching the whole thing. Uh Thank you to everyone who sent in a response uh, to our listener question this week. We really appreciate it. All right. Our next guest is a New York Times bestselling author of seven novels. The New York Times Book Review says that her work exists in the dissection and comprehension of female desire, what we want, what we absolutely don't, and maybe paramount, what we're even allowed to have. Her latest novel, Romantic Comedy, is a love letter to the whole concept of rom-coms, Here's Curtis Sittenfeld, who joined us on stage at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. Curtis, welcome to Livewire. Thank you. Now, this book is about a writer on a uh, live television sketch program that airs on Saturday nights. (laughs) I believe uh, the show in your book is called The Night Owls, TNO. And I don't want to brag, but I think I may have cracked the... Case. (laughs) I am thinking this might be about Saturday Night Live. Am I getting warm? It might be. It might be. Yeah. What were the circumstances uh, around which the idea for this book, I understand it was in the pandemic and you were watching a lot of SNL? Yeah, Yeah, very, very subtle connection. Um, Yeah, so my family was watching a lot of SNL and I would think to myself as we watched, someone should write a screenplay about the phenomenon of talented but sort of ordinary men on the show, like cast members or writers, who end up dating and in some cases marrying these incredibly famous, gorgeous, (laughs) world famous, like um, women who are 
either musical guests or guest hosts on the show. Mm -hmm. This is a direct assault on Pete Davidson and Colin Jost. It's it's actually, it's not a direct assault on, it's a celebration. It's like, let's have more of this, but let's have it run in both directions. I mean, it's funny because I find Pete Davidson delightful and endearing. Anyway, I would think like, oh, there should be a screenplay about a woman who's a writer for this show and and she writes a sketch about who it would never happen with like an ordinary female writer and a a smoking hot male celebrity and then that week there's a smoking hot male celebrity and they have chemistry and then i was working on a different book that i and i sort of wrote myself into a corner with it hmm. um and eventually i thought like oh that that other idea um maybe instead of a screenplay it should be a novel and maybe the the person who writes it should be me oh okay <laughs> <laughs> That's a big epiphany to have. I know. It, actually, sometimes you're the last to know. <laughs> <laughs> um, can we talk about Sally Mills, the main character? What's kind of her? What's her deal? What's her motivation? Um, well, so she's she's in her late thirties, which I'm I'm now in my late forties, and I think people are like, it's so refreshing to have um, such like an old protagonist in a romance but um anyway but she's she's in um she's in her late 30s and she's she's been at the show for nine years and she's professionally confident but she's sort of personally insecure she had a sort of what she thinks of as a starter marriage in her early 20s um got divorced didn't have kids she doesn't feel like she needs, you know, to get married, but she also has sort of low expectations. She doesn't think that either what she wants is available to her or what's available to her is that appealing. I wonder what it's like to write something that's a sort of romantic novel in, you know, this era where certainly you don't want that character to be defined as someone who is incomplete unless they find Mm -hmm. their other half, which is the premise of most rom-coms from 10 years ago. How do you how do you how do you work within the genre without getting too stuck in some of the tropes of the genre? I mean, I think that the genre is actually a lot more complex and and sort of varied than people who don't read that widely in it realize. Um, so some people will say to me like, "Oh, were you trying to subvert the romantic comedy or the rom com?" Um, you know, the, the book form, which actually, I, like, that's now, as you might or might not know, what, what was once called Chicklet 20 years right, ago yeah. is now called rom-coms in books. Wow. Um, Why'd they get rid of Chicklet? I can't see any, <laughs> I any problems with that terminology at all. The one, the, the, what I really object to is there's a term, like, an, and people, you know, sort of say this with a straight face, there's women's fiction is like a category, <laughs> yeah. which is, so it's, I guess there's fiction and then there's women's fiction. <laughs> and I write women's fiction, it turns out. Um, so <laughs> You're always the last one to know. I know, I know, it's true, it's true. So um, I think the romantic comedy has been subverted. I think that, that there's a sort of stereotype that, again, people who don't necessarily read it might think of that's like 20 or 30 years out of date. It's very racially diverse it's very queer there's lots of elements of like you know fantasy or time travel or sci-fi there's it's like a a big world out Mm -hmm. there in in romance uh can we talk a little bit about noah brewster 
What's his What's his story? Um, so Noah is the the pop star who's the guest host and the musical guest at the Night Owls. Um, in the the week that takes up like the first half of the book is the the kind of countdown of preparing for the live show on Saturday night. Um, and he's someone who he sort of hit it big like twenty years ago, and he is he's actually like a genuinely nice person although Sally is a little bit suspicious of him and he's also very handsome um and and I think she she sort of feels like oh how could someone who's very rich and famous and and handsome like one how could they also be this nice and then two like why would they be interested in like a successful but unremarkable writer at a tv show obviously you've written a lot of books and you think about character a lot and you're I'm presuming as a writer, you're, you want the reader to have certain feelings about characters. But was it a different challenge to write this Noah guy and to be like, we really need the readers to like be rooting for this dude? That's a good question, actually. So I think that having a book published can be this incredible um, like illustration in what you can't control and in how people have incredibly varied reactions. Right. So I think... My job was to write someone that to create in Noah, someone that I thought was appealing, and then like hope that enough mm. people would agree with me that uh-huh. the book would find readers. Or so I, I think that Noah is very endearing. Mm-hmm. Um, although it's funny because I also got enough of a sort of like um, heterosexual female enthusiasm for this book that I was like, I feel like some, maybe some straight men who are having troubles should like just could, read it. Could take it. Cause the well, thing is, the, yeah. yeah, well, sorry, sorry. I won't presume. No, I'm just, I'm just no I got a lot of tips. I, I actually, I'm going to, I'm going to start acting very differently now <laughs> no. after observing Noah Brewster's character, but. I mean, you, you seem like, you know, obviously you're a professional listener, right? I think that the main things that are most appealing about him are not that he's very handsome, very rich, you know, very successful. It's that he actually, like, listens to Sally and, like, remembers the things that she told him and, <laughs> and is, like, very affectionate and mm-hmm. complimentary. Like, all these things that are actually you don't need to be yeah. a successful pop singer to, to like, <laughs> employ those techniques. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually not talking to you. Yeah, no, no, I don't, I don't, I'm not. I mean, honestly, it's an honor just to even be mentioned in the same company as Noah, Noah Brewster. Noah Brewster, making um, July. We're talking to, right, we're talking to Curtis Sittenfeld here on Livewire. Uh, her latest book is Romantic Comedy. Um, what I also really enjoyed about the book was the, the kind of, uh, you know, the Night Owls or the Saturday Night Live backdrop, mm-hmm. um, you know, because they're, uh, Sally is a writer, and and what what it this seemed to involve was you, Curtis Sittenfeld, writing a lot of Saturday Night Live esque content. Yeah. Did you know how to do that? Had you had you sent a packet into SNL at some point? Uh, was that ever a dream of yours? Um, no, you know. So again, I'm I'm 48 now. I did have the thought while writing this, like if I had understood how it all worked, maybe in my 20s, I I would have applied. Although I I also I will say right now, like I'm like. 60% asleep right now. Like, I was like, I, I good, I liked, I'm on, I live in Minneapolis. I'm like two hours behind and I like to get in bed literally at like 8 45 p.m. Right. So it's like, I almost think, like, setting aside the lifestyle of an yeah, SNL like writer. Bio, I mean, they literally pull yeah. like one or two or three all nighters a week. Like, yeah. you, I couldn't, in my prime, I couldn't have done that. 
I mean, you're writing sketches. You're writing premises for sketches, which your you know your work in the book is going up against what we see if we watch you know Saturday Night Live, and and that's something that's you know professional sketch writers, and it's there's this process of getting to the supposedly best idea. Like, did you run any of this by people that you know that work in that world? Well, or? okay, not not only did I not, but the, <laughs> there's there's one there's really there's kind of like scenes that are set during rehearsals mm -hmm. and there's like references to sketches but there's almost only one scene where you're getting like verbatim mm -hmm. punchlines one after the other my children helped me write it <laughs> <laughs> oh. well bring them to SNL you could work I know. there and, and actually like I've been really complimented on that yeah. scene specifically and and they'll be like, I love that. And I'll be like, yeah, my older daughter, I think she was like 12 when she wrote that. It was like, it was, we were sitting, so it's the premise of that is um, Google searches that dogs would, would do. And, and we were like one of many families who'd gotten a pandemic dog. So we were like sitting in, um, we got, we actually got stuck in gridlock in a school parking lot in Minneapolis. And so I was like, I, I give up. I just pulled back in. And then I was like, oh, Oh, we know we've been meaning to do that dog sketch thing. So wow. like, why don't we make use of this time? And so sometimes it helps to almost like maybe not take your own work too seriously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the dog sketch, uh, you know, dogs googling things is really mm -hmm. funny. Also, I just like the passing reference to a TV show, a singing TV show called mm -hmm. American Lungs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was very good. Real chef's kiss. <laughs> I will say, actually, so my brother was the first reader of this book, and it's he. That's the dog scene. He was like, "It's not that funny." Most people are like, "That's my favorite part of the book." And American Lungs. He's like, I, "It just really rubs me the wrong way." And I was like, "Okay, I'll." Ch and then I like tried. Wait, to he think, didn't like American Lungs. Yeah, either. he didn't uh, like. But he pick but, a lane. I dude. know, I know, but it's it's also subjective. It's good. It's good to get harsh feedback from your family members early on because it, <laughs> it prepares you for the eventual bad reviews. That, Is this the first? interview where American Lungs has been referenced. It is the first. It Point Livewire. Yeah. Uh, the book is romantic comedy. Curtis Sidenfeld, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Curtis Sittenfeld right here on Livewire. Her latest book, Romantic Comedy, is out and available right now. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. We have to take a very quick break, but don't go anywhere. When we come back, we are going to hear some music from the very wonderful Margot Silker. Stay with us. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal T this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. They make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LiveWire, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Before we get to our musical guest this week, a little preview of next week's show. We are going to be celebrating Black History Month with a special episode. We're going to be talking to the poet and author Tracy K. Smith 
about her new memoir, To Free the Captives, A Plea for the American Soul. Uh, she is going to tell us about how in the book she looks to uncover black strength and community through the lens of her own family, which starts with her father growing up in Sunflower, Alabama. Then we're going to talk to the writer and poet Saeed Jones. He's got a collection of poems out called Alive at the End of the World. He talks about grief and life and what it means to be a black queer person in a world that feels kind of like it's ending. Plus, we're going to hear music from musician and performer McLeet, who artfully blends music and sound and has been all over the world, not just music stages, but also TED Talks and a meeting with the United Nations. So that's coming up next week on the show. Do not miss it. All right, our musical guest this week spent the last seven years touring internationally as a critically acclaimed singer-songwriter. Her debut album, which we all loved around here, Poho Real, was nominated for a UK Americana Album of the Year. And now her critically acclaimed sophomore album, Valley of Hearts Delight, is out. And you can get it. So please do. First, though, listen to Margot Silker right here on Livewire. Hello. Thanks for having me back. Thanks for coming back. I know you've been touring and running all around the country and New York City and Tennessee and everywhere in between. Um, I'm curious about the name of this album, Valley of Heart's Delight. Is that a reference to where you grew up? It is. That's a, um, an old agricultural slogan that they use to entice people to come to the Valley of Heart's Delight to, to behold the apricot and prune blossoms every spring. And this is in California? This is in, the, yeah, the Santa Clara Valley. Which is now where Google is? <laughs> That's, yeah, so instead of, yeah, now they just have apples. Yes, <laughs> totally different. Were you into country music or Americana music when you were growing up, and was that typical for folks in the area? I didn't know, I didn't really know about country music. I was listening to, well, I sang in the church choir. Mm. And I sang in school, and I, I got into Simon and Garfunkel. Hmm. That was like the gateway for me. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And you know, I had like a, I had my very own Garfunkel, my sister. <laughs> 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 and like the real Garfunkel, do you no longer speak to her? <laughs> no, I do. I do speak. Good. I speak to her. I'm glad that's where the similarity ended. Exactly. Like the folk revival, like the, the 60s folk revival stuff, kind of um, like Joan Baez was also like a local legend because mm -hmm. she was in the Bay Area um, and she was a huge influence. Hmm. I, something yeah. else I didn't know until recently was that you were in uh, living in Spain and you had a Lucinda Williams cover band called Drunken Angels. That's right. <laughs> What's it like playing country music in Spain? Like, are they down for it? Well, Luke, I have to tell you, I was in the Basque country, and ah. if they heard me call that Spain, you know, they would oh, sure. uh, right. they'd have Thank something you. to say about it. They yeah. sure would. <laughs> I don't need any sheep ranchers coming after me <laughs> from the Basque country. But, I mean, that is, so that is a part of Spain where there's obviously a very rich tradition of rural life and, and agriculture and farming and things. So were they into your Lucinda Williams cover well, band? You know, I was, I was, when I lived there, I was living in Bilbao, which is referred to as the Portland of Europe. So I, you know, and I think part of the reason I, I loved living there is that it's like they've got a great art scene. They've got the, the Guggenheim Museum and there's the coast. So it's, there's this like surf culture that's like very mind blowing for someone who grew up like going to Santa Cruz. And it's like, oh, but here you're all like the young kids are like drinking wine and surfing. <laughs> 
Um, so uh, what is uh, the song we're going to hear? Um, I'm going to sing the song With the Middle for you. Okay. This is Margot Silker on Livewire. Hey! That is Margot Silker right here on Livewire. Her album Valley of Hearts Delight is available right now. All right, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the show. A very big thanks to our guests, Jay Wortham, Curtis Sittenfeld, and Margot Silker. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. And our producer and editor is Melanie Sepchenko. 
Eben Hoffer and Molly Pettit are our technical directors, and our house sound is by Daniel Blake. Trey Hester is our assistant editor. Our marketing and production manager is Karen Pan. Rosa Garcia is our operations associate. Jackie Ibarra is our production fellow, and Becky Phillips is our intern. Our house band is Ethan Fox Tucker, Sam Tucker, Al Alves, and A. Walker Spring, who also composes our music. This episode was mixed by Molly Pettit and Trey Hester. Additional funding provided by the Marie Lamprum Charitable Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members Toral Milbrath, Portland, Oregon, and Victoria Grosch of Bremerton, Washington. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire team. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time, because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.